So I wonder if you've ever desperately wanted access to something, but weren't sure you could get in. So the Yellowstone Club is one of the most exclusive clubs in North America. It boasts members like Bill Gates, Google's Eric Schmidt, Justin Timberlake, Tom Brady. And to get through the door, to get through the door of this exclusive club, you first have to buy a home there in Big Sky, Montana. And homes in that community will run you between maybe 5 and $25 million. Just a little bit of change. But that alone won't guarantee you a spot. You have to have a sponsor. And then there are extensive background checks. There are interviews, a process that can in fact take years. And if, after all of that, you still may qualify, there is the half a mil introductory fee, right, just to get in. And then there is the $50,000 annual fee to pay the dues. And I'm just going to go out on a limb here, and I'm going to guess that most of us don't qualify for a club like that. I'm going to guess most of us don't have access. I mean, my application's pending. <laughs> JT and I are like this, right? He's sponsoring me. I could care less about JT, but my wife kind of likes him. Total side note. Point being, rich and famous will try to jump through all kinds of hoops. They will, go to great, they will go to great lengths, that is, great lengths, in order to get access to exclusive establishments. But friend, I wonder if you've ever pondered and asked the question, what is required in order to have access to God? What's required in order to get access to God? Is it like the Yellowstone Club, all about who you know? Is it about... Your name? Is it about what you own? Is it about the dues you can pay or the things that you've accomplished in life? What is required for access to God? And friends, I think that, that question begs a host of other questions, doesn't it? I mean, does God in fact have any requirements? Does God reject any applicants that come his way? Or is access free to all? Or does that access come at a price? And, and if that access to God comes at a price, is that a price that you can pay? How confident are you, my friend, that you will be accepted by God? Well, friends, these questions really prompt and turn us back to our study in Isaiah this morning, the Old Testament prophet of Isaiah. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn there. We're going to be in chapters 43 through 53. Yes, 11 chapters this morning, and if you don't happen to have a Bible with you, we provide them in the seat backs before you. You can find uh, Isaiah 43 starting on page 603 of the Bibles in the seat back before you. And you're going to want to keep your Bibles out because, again, 11 chapters, we're going to be covering a lot of ground. And if you are here this morning and you're new to a Bible, uh, just know that when I refer to a chapter, that's the big bold number there on the page, and when I refer to a verse, that's the little superscript number. And so if you are visiting Isaiah, this book is, is being written and it's really depicting, and Isaiah is prophesying, during a time of great decline in Israel. Her kings have failed, Israel's people have been faithless, and thus Isaiah prophesies of a future where Jerusalem is in fact going to be captured. Many will be killed and those 
few who remain will be exiled and sent off into captivity in Babylon. And there in Babylon, there will be no Jewish temple. There will be no sacrifices. There will be no prophetic word. Israel, in essence, is going to be shut out from God's presence. Effectively denied access to God. Is there any hope for Israel? If there is, friends, what does their hope tell us about our own hope this morning? As we look at these chapters, I want us to consider them sort of in three parts. Consider first, God's passion. Second, God's plan. And third, God's person. We're going to think through the, the, these 11 chapters in that way. Thinking first, God's passion, then God's plan, then God's person. That'll serve as our outline. So first, let's think about God's passion. God's passion. Recall last week we left off and we ended in 42, right, 24 through 26. So if you're there at 43, you can just look back to the previous few verses. And there we have Israel sinning against the Lord, right? God gives Jacob, Israel, up to the looter, Israel to the plunderers, verse 24. And so as we're closing, it looks like, you know, God is done with his people Israel, But then as we turn to chapter 43, look there to verse 1. Look there to verse 1. I'll read through verse 7. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored. And I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Friend, is God done with Israel? Not at all, right? Not at all. God here, he's just getting started, it seems, with his people. And here we get get a sense of God's passion. What is God passionate about? God's passionate about his people. You know, our passions tend to revolve maybe around our favorite sports teams. You might even say we get religious when it comes to our sports teams, right about the big win yesterday. Maybe we get passionate about our music. Maybe we get passionate, well, I know we do, right? You just turn on the news, look at Facebook. We get passionate about our politics. We have our passions, those things that animate us, those things that excite us. But friends, God's passion, what is he passionate about? What animates God? What excites God? I hope you see here it's his people. 
Notice he calls them by name, O Jacob, O Israel, verse 1. Right? Implying intimacy. You are mine, he closes in verse 1. Implying not just intimacy, but relationship with his people. Right? They're not to fear, we read, for he is with them. Why, verse 4? Because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. Friends, just stop for a moment and consider those words. After all Israel had done, after all the ways Israel had rejected God and been unfaithful to God, right, repeatedly and persistently, for God now, at this moment, to speak with such fondness and with such affection for his people, it's astounding. Nobody loves like this. And you hear the tenderness in these words, right? They are a bruised people, and so he comes with balm to their soul. Oh, my Christian friend here this morning, if you have walked through these doors, and if you feel the bruises of life, if you feel them, if your soul feels them, if you've perhaps come and you know you've you've messed up, you know you've made grave mistakes, and you are wondering if God right now sort of stands above you, towering over you, hand outstretched, quivering and ready to strike you, if that is your impression of God this morning, look again at these verses. You need to know God is tender towards you. If you doubt his love for you, his commitment to you, his heart for you. Read again these words, precious in my eyes. Friends, are there any eyes more precious than the Lord's eyes fixed fondly and tenderly upon you? What other eyes would you need fixed upon you than this Lord if his eyes are upon you? Honored. As in God is committed to you. He is delighted to have you. He is determined to save you. And I love you. Now, I confess, I was reading, I picked up early, well, on Monday, I picked up these chapters, I started reading, and I stopped right there. I may have blushed when I read those words. I confess, I had to read them again because I was taken back. Because for some of us, right, God never speaks this way. God actually, in our minds, God's not supposed to speak this way. We almost think this language is unbecoming of God. It is undignified for him to speak like this. You know, we imagine, pardon Christian Dennett, God's like some British lord. He is proper and refined and, as always, deeply reserved. And now, here is God, like, here he is, and he's gushing like some infatuated teen. But friend, I need you. I want you. I think Isaiah would have you to see. God would have you to see his heart for his people. He loves his people. Not because they are lovely. We have seen that time and time again. No, it's because God is love. His love is a committed, it is a passionate, it is a loyal and exclusive and extravagant love. His nature and his essence are love. His will and his works are love. 
Because that's who God is. God is love. 1 John 4 eight, Which is why Isaiah will say this God will indeed exchange everything to have you. And we're going to see just how far God will go to do just that. God will stop at nothing to keep you. Because if you are his, that is this God's heart toward you. And he loves you not because he needs anything from you. God is perfectly delighted in the Trinity, in himself. He doesn't love you because he wants to seek something from you in return. So often that's why we love. That is not why God loves. There's nothing you could give him in return that God doesn't already possess. He doesn't love you with strings attached. And friend, that is the best kind of love. The love that comes from someone who absolutely doesn't need you. And so because he doesn't need you, he's now in fact free to love you fully and selflessly and eternally. That is God's love. It's what we read later. Isaiah 49, 13. Go ahead and flip there. Isaiah 49, 13. Feeling forsaken, maybe forgotten by God. 49.13 Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. But Zion said, right, referring to Israel, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son in her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. We'll stop right there. You see what Isaiah is saying. Isaiah is trying to help the people see that they are more precious to God than a newborn baby is to its own mother. It's why actually when we sang earlier before the throne of God above, there's that line, my name is graven on his hands that comes here from Isaiah. Right? Our names are written on his heart as we sang. Right? That's God's commitment. That's his devotion toward his people. Or look for it again, chapter 51. Go to 51.12. 51.12. I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, of the son of man who is made like grass, and have forgotten the Lord your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth, and you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy. And where is the wrath of the oppressor? He who is bowed down shall speedily be released. He shall not die and go down to the pit, neither shall his bread be lacking. I am the Lord, your God, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. And I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand, establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth. 
and saying to Zion, you are my people. I am the Lord your God, we just read. You are, the Lord says of Israel, my people. Right, That right there, I am the Lord your God, you are my people, that's the language of the Exodus. It's the language when God first wed his people there in the desert. It's the language of relationship. That's the language of God's commitment towards his people. Not his people's commitment to God. That's God's commitment for his people. Because friends, that's where our hope lies. Our hope doesn't lie in our commitment to God. Otherwise, we're all doomed. No, our hope lies in God's commitment to us. It's not our obedience, but his obedience. It's not our resolve, it's his resolve. It's not our strength, it's God's strength. It's not our love, it's his love. God will go on in chapter 52, and he will go on to describe Israel as a beautiful bride, as a regal queen, 51, then 52.2, one beyond price, 52.3, my people, 52.4-6. Friends, I say all that because I want you to see and grasp how untiring and unrelenting and unwavering God's passion for his people is. Regardless of how you may feel listening to these words, no one whom the Lord values so highly and whom the Lord loves so deeply can ever be insignificant or worthless God refers to his people, therefore, as the apple of his eye. You know, the world will say, listen, if you're feeling a bit down, a little bit blue, right? You need a a self-esteem boost. You need to look inside yourself. You need to think better thoughts of yourself. You need to actually will yourself to believe better things about yourself. That's the world's answer. But Christianity says, Listen, stop trying to convince yourself of what is not true. Friends, the reality about you is worse than you think. God knows that. There's no hope there. God says, no, look to me. I will tell you what is true. God is passionate about his people and the way he loves them. And not just loves them as individuals with such love, but how he loves his people corporately. And friends, that brings us to our second point, God's plan. God's plan. You know, when we're passionate about something, if you're passionate about something, usually you've got a plan. A plan to see that passion realized. A a plan to see that thing come to pass. So if you're passionate about travel, what will you do? You'll plan well in advance. You'll strategize you'll think about how to make that trip a reality. Or if you're passionate about career, you'll set out some goals for yourself. You've mapped out some kind of plan to get from here to there of where you'd like to be. Friends, does God have plans for this wayward people that he loves? He absolutely does. The first thing I want us to see, so if you're a note taker, point two has two sub points, just heads up. First, thing to see about God's plans is he will restore his people physically. He'll restore them physically. So look back, flip all the way back to 43, 14. Go back to chapter 43, verse 14. God will restore his people physically. 
43:14 Thus says the Lord your redeemer the holy one of Israel For your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives even the Chaldeans and the ships in which they rejoice I am the Lord your holy one the creator of Israel your king Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Right? God won't snuff out the smoldering wick. We thought about that last week. But of his enemies, uh, he will. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Stop there. You see, God here is promising to restore his people from their exile in Babylon. He's promising to return them to the land. Now we read those words and maybe we shrug our shoulders and think, oh, okay. But friends, such things in the ancient world were largely unheard of. When a people were exiled, a people at this point as small as the nation of Israel, in the midst of a land as large and a city as significant as Babylon, when they were exiled just for a few generations, What would happen? Well, they would lose their language. They would lose their religion, their food, their culture, their entire way of life. They're assimilated. That's the whole point. That's how you destroy a people. So for God to say he's going to deliver tiny Israel, restore her from her captivity, this helpless nation from the most powerful nation of the world at the time, that is a laughable claim. It's a laughable claim, which is why he's going to use imagery here. If you picked it up, imagery actually familiar from the Exodus to remind them, his people, that this same God who would deliver them centuries ago at the Exodus can do it once again. Right? What's laughable to us, what seems impossible to us, is not impossible for this God. Only this time, verse 43, 19, we read it's a new thing. New things. So there's going to be ways in which this exodus won't be like the first. He, yes, he's going to make a way, we read, through the wilderness. But it won't be with a deliverer that he raises up among them. There won't be another deliverer like Moses. All of Israel's leaders, right, they've failed. God is again teaching his people, as he needs to teach us, that he alone saves. He alone can accomplish this. There is no king. There is no ruler. There is no political party platform. There is no budget bill. There is no doctor. There is no job prospect that can finally save you this morning. None of those things can. Only God can provide a restoration like this. And how will God accomplish this? Look forward, chapter 44, verse 26. 44, verse 26. God says he is the Lord. And we pick up, he is the Lord who, verse 26, confirms the word of his servant 
and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins, who says to the deep, be dry, and now I will dry up your rivers, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. Cyrus was a Babylonian king. He'll go on to say, 45.1, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped. The Lord's saying, I grasped it. To subdue nations before him, and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him, that gates may not be closed. I, the Lord, will go before you, speaking of Cyrus, and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes and secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. Stop right there. So notice a few things. Notice this promise that Jerusalem will be rebuilt that the temple itself there in Jerusalem will be raised from the ashes. And who will fulfill all my purpose? Verse 28, 44-28. We read Cyrus will. So notice what's happening. That's the first mention of Cyrus. Notice what's happening. God is not only predicting. He's not only predicting what will come to pass. Cyrus has not even been born yet. He's not only predicting what will come to pass. He is predicting specifically what will happen Cities being rebuilt, specific buildings being rebuilt. And he's predicting who will do it. And notice it's not an Israelite, but it's a foreigner. And not just any foreigner, it's a foreigner of a specific nation. And not just any nation, but Persia. And it won't just be any resident of Persia that will see this come to pass, but a specific resident. And then God goes so far as to name the one who will accomplish this, Cyrus. You know, back in 41, we read of this conqueror from the east who's going to come down from the north. But this is the first time we've had him named. And keep in mind, this is over 100 years before Cyrus would be born. Right? His parents aren't even alive at this point. His great-grandparents, I trust, aren't alive yet. Now, secularists and skeptics will read verses like this. And they will assume this is proof that Isaiah wrote this prophecy much later, after it had all happened. Because how could he know who Cyrus was? Or there's maybe a second Isaiah, right? A second writer of the book who wrote later. There's no way Isaiah could have known what would happen. They would say, no way he could certainly name names like this. I mean, just think of the kind of power, think of the kind of sovereignty a God would have to have to name someone like Cyrus at this point. Because at the time when Isaiah's writing, Persia's not even on the radar. The Assyrians are the dominant people. And so God would first, in order to write this, God would first have to see that, yes, Israel will fall. And that impregnable city of Jerusalem will be sacked. And yes, the people will be exiled. 
And God would have to see that after all that, and Assyria had accomplished that, then he would have to see that Assyria would fall. And not just to any nation, but Assyria would have to fall to Babylon. Because then God would have to raise up another nation, Persia. And that among this nation, there would be a family amongst that nation. And that family would have a child, and they would name that child Cyrus. And then that child Cyrus would have to be raised in such a way, and he would rise to power in such a way, such that he's able to conquer Babylon, and thus he would have the power to accomplish this prophecy that Isaiah has given. And then not only would this foreign power and king have to be in the position to actually do it, but then he would actually choose to do it by sending God's exiles back to this specific city to rebuild this specific building. Friends, just ponder all that would have to take place for this to come true. Friends, this is less likely than the Islamic State announcing today when you go home from this service that they are going to be promoting and paying for women to study in Christian schools and hire Christian missionaries to do it. Like that is more likely, friend, than what Isaiah is prophesying here. This stuff shouldn't happen. So consider again the thousands and millions of individual decisions that God would have to perfectly orchestrate for this to come to pass, down to individual names. But friends, if there is a God who has created all things, who governs all things, who rules over all things, who is sovereign over all, should we be surprised that this God can do this? So in as Christians, when we say that God is sovereign, we mean God is sovereign particularly sovereign, exhaustively sovereign, declaring exactly what will be down to the name of an individual baby. Friends, that is a God that you can trust in. That's a God you can entrust your entire life to, wholly and fully, even it seems like your life is lost. Because again, how remote, how inconceivable how laughable the fulfillment of that promise must have seen to this small and humiliated remnant that would be in Babylon. I mean, how many twists and turns would have to be in this plan of God? But Christian, just because you can't see around that corner right in front of you, just because you can't see it around that first corner, doesn't mean that God for a moment can't doesn't mean that he can't not only see, but carve that path and restore you. God will restore his people physically. But friends, all of this that he'll do for Israel is actually meant to point us to a greater reality. And that's the second sub-point I want us to see about God's plan, is that God has a plan to restore his people physically. But secondly, he's got a plan to redeem his people spiritually, to redeem them spiritually. So look back to chapter 43. Look back to chapter 43, verse 22. God has a plan to redeem his people spiritually. He's done wonderful things for his people. And then we read in 43, 22. Despite what God's done, yet, verse 22, you did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. 
You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You have not brought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins and wearied me with your iniquities. I, I am he who blots out your transgression for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Friends, recall Israel's problem. What is going to get her in this whole mess of captivity? It's a spiritual problem. The problem is fundamentally spiritual. She'll be in physical exile. How did she get there? Because she was, as we saw last week, in spiritual ruin. Right? God had not burdened them. God had not wearied them. And yet we read 43, 24, You, Israel, have burdened me with your sins and wearied me with your iniquities. Just remember, Israel's a religious people. Right? They could attend church, sing songs, listen very patiently to long sermons. They could all hang around, chat pleasantly after service. Right? They could walk through the motions. But their hearts, we see, are far from God. He considered their worship a farce. So much so that it wasn't indeed worship at all. And yet, nonetheless, we read immediately after that that he promises to blot out their transgressions, to not remember their sins. And he says much the same in 44.22. Chapter 44.22, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. And friends, on that day, God's people will return to him. And we get a tiny picture of what that return will look like. Turn there, chapter 44, beginning verse 1. 44, beginning verse 1. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jerusalem, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit upon your offspring. And my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing, flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand the Lord's. And name himself by the name of Israel. Right, what we're reading right there is there's going to come a day when God's people will call upon the Lord. And each one will know the Lord personally, intimately, relationally. And if you know your Old Testament, you're going to hear echoes of Jeremiah 31 in that language as well. That's because God's going to what send his spirit, we read. He's going to send his spirit upon his people. The promises of Ezekiel 36, that promise of Joel 2, 28 and 29. Isaiah is going to call all this work an everlasting salvation in 4517. And yet, how will God do this? How is God going to bring this about? Because we saw back in Isaiah 6, this God is holy. You don't trifle with this God. When Isaiah, a holy man, was in the presence of this God, Isaiah was undone before him. 
It's why Israel was finally exiled from God, denied access to God, because they, like you and me, they were a sinful people. Right? Israel loved God insofar as they could use God, so long as they could get things from God. They worshipped God so far as it benefited them to worship God. But as soon as it was in Israel's best interest to abandon God, they did. They looked to other nations, other saviors, other deliverers for help. Friends, just like you and I do. Just like we do. Friends, like them, we too can trust in political power to rescue us. Yeah, most of us won't bow down to images of wood or metal. That's not to say we don't prostrate ourselves before our careers. We don't prostrate ourselves before the promises of wealth or of stature, or of safety and security and relationships? I mean, maybe ask the question. Ask yourself, if all your fears, if they could just vanish, if all your fears could go away, and if all your wildest dreams could replace them, no anxiety, just what you've dreamt of, everything you've ever wanted, you could have all of it with that minor caveat that you just wouldn't have God. You'd have everything else. Would you take it? Does that make you think twice? Our temptation towards that Faustian bargain, right, reveals the true nature of our own hearts. We are no less prone to idol worship than Israel was. Even if we might deem our idols a little more sophisticated than theirs, we are no less prone in our hearts to idol worship. And yet we read Exodus 34, 7 or Numbers 14, 18 that God is slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, forgiving iniquity and rebellion, and yet he will not leave the guilty unpunished. So friends, what do we do? We once again come at this point to the riddle of the Old Testament. How can God be both just and merciful? How can he both punish sin, which he promises to do, and yet forgive sinners like we've just been reading he promises to do? Well, friends, that thirdly brings us to God's person. Thirdly, God's person. For what we're going to find as we close up in these last chapters is that all of God's great and glorious plans, all those plans turn on a person. They hinge, in fact, on a person. You know, last week we were introduced to this servant, one who will rule and establish justice in Isaiah 42. 42, rather. He's, he's the picture of a king, but a humble king, a compassionate king. But, you know, in these chapters, I loved how Jeremy introduced the two songs, sort of double-click, you know, on that, on that image, and it sort of pops into view. Well, that's, that's what's happening in these chapters. We're going to double-click and, and into view this, this servant that we had introduced to us last week. This servant's going to come into clearer view. So look with me to 49. Because we're going to be introduced to the servant three more times in these passages. First in 49. Look at verses 1 through 3. It goes a little further, but just consider verses 1 to 3 first. Listen to me, O coastlands. Give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. 
He'd made me a polished arrow. In his quiver he hid me away. And he said, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Now right there, stop. We think Isaiah is talking about the nation of Israel. And yet, as we keep reading, But I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense is with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him. All right, so this servant isn't Israel. It's not Jacob. This servant is bringing Jacob back to God. That Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord. And my God has become my strength. He says, is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Right, so see, that's, this is not Israel, the servant. This is someone that will bring Israel back to God. One who, as we close, will actually be a light unto the nations. That God's salvation should reach the end of the earth. And notice what's the instrument of this servant's rule. He made, verse 2, my mouth like a sharp sword. Right, So he would rule as a king, but not with the sword, but rather with the word of God. That's how this servant will rule. He is both a king who reigns, and we're seeing he's also a prophet who speaks. We're introduced to him again. This servant, he comes into view again. Chapter 50, verse 4. The Lord has given me a tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with the word him who is weary. Morning by morning, he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. Sorry, I lost my place. To hear as those who are taught. The Lord has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out my beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. So not only would this prophet sustain God's people with his word, but we see right here this same servant, prophet, will also be spit upon for giving God's people that very word. The prophet, it seems, is going to be rejected by the people. And then we're introduced to him again, chapter 52, verse 13. Jump there. And here in 52, 13, this whole section from 52, 13, all the way through the end of chapter 53, it is one section about this servant. It's the most elaborate, most descriptive it's the most harrowing and most poignant picture of all. It's also the most individualistic. It's the most personal. It's the most penetrating picture about the nature of this servant and who he is. This is a section 52:13, all the way through the end of chapter 53. This is called like the crown jewel of Isaiah's own theology. 52:13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Right, it begins right there, the first two verses. Well, they initially begin with such promise, right? One who was exalted, 
That's who this servant is. Like a king, high and lifted up. You know, in the Old Testament, that language of high and lifted up, that's reserved for God himself. So we're being introduced to this servant. This is a glorious servant. Like the picture's getting better. But then it goes dark. Right, ominous. Right away in verse 14. As his appearance is so marred and disfigured to be barely recognizable. And we read in verse 15, what's he going to do? Sprinkle many nations. That's temple language of sacrifice, of blood. This servant will do sprinkling. This servant will do cleansing. But we're not told at this point what or who will be the sacrifice. We keep reading in 53, chapter 53, pick up the second half of verse 2. This servant, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. You notice this, this servant's not going to be like so many of those personalities you see on TV, maybe on billboards. Not going to be sort of those telegenic personalities, broad smiles and handsome faces. That's not the picture we get from this servant. It seems this servant, he wasn't exactly attractional in style. He wasn't that prominent face. More importantly, though God exalted this servant, his people despised him. And then we get to the heart of his work. Picking up in verse 4. Surely he, referring to the servant, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Some of you wonder why we sing that song. We sang earlier in the service. I've had a few of you comment. It is so low. It's so sad. So somber. Friends, it comes right from these verses stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death 
and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Friends, and right there, the last piece of that puzzle comes together. How can God be both just and merciful? How can he forgive sinners and simultaneously punish sin? Isaiah says it will be by a substitutionary sacrifice. That's how it will happen. Right? He was, verse 5, pierced for his transgressions. No. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Right now we're seeing right there the servant. He is the sacrifice. And why is this servant's sacrifice any different than any that came before? It's because, verse 9, this servant had done no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth. In other words, this servant was innocent of sin. So when his soul made, verse 10, an offering for guilt, he now, verse 11, makes many to be accounted righteous. Right? Though they, the people, are not righteous by nature, because of the sacrifice of this servant, God reckons his people as righteous. He accounts, he credits to them the righteousness of his servant. What they don't possess and what his servant possesses, that's what they come to possess because of this servant. Friends, that's the gospel. Right here, as clear as day in the book of Isaiah. That we who are not inherently righteous before God, how does God speak of his people as sheep? Listen, I'm not a farmer, right? I, I don't have sheep. But from what little I've read, they can be a bit ornery at times. They are dirty and they are stupid. God doesn't say, Israel, you're like a lion. Proud, strong. No, he's like, you're like sheep. You wander off and you die and you're dumb what God says. We're not inherently righteous. We need the servant's righteousness. And notice something about the servant. Right in the first shot we had of him from last week, there are four of these songs. They're called servant songs. The first one he's presented as a humble king. A humble king who rules with justice, Isaiah 42. And then this morning we've seen he's a prophet, uh, a prophet who rules not by sword but by his word, by the rule of his word. So we've seen he's a king, he's a prophet, but how is he being presented here, the servant? He's a priest, one who sprinkles the nations with his own blood, one who offers up his own body as the guilt offering. And right there we see how all of the Old Testament hopes of one who rules God's people and speaks God's word to God's people and offers satisfaction for sin for God's people. All that converges in one person, in this servant. Friend, who is the servant? It's Jesus Christ. All of God's hopes, they all come to fruition in this glorious person of Jesus Christ. That's what the gospel writers help us see. That's what Paul helps us see. We read earlier from 1 Peter, 
It's what Luke helps us see in Acts. There are so many New Testament quotations of what I have read. If I were to read all of them, we'd be here until our members meeting tonight. But friends, most importantly, Jesus understood this about himself. In Matthew 8, he quotes from Isaiah 53, 4 to explain his own ministry. The disciples wouldn't get it. They didn't have ears to see, but he did. In fact, it's so clear, this last servant song, that actually in many Jewish synagogues, this final picture of the servant, this fourth one, is actually left out of Jewish lectionaries. So in many Jewish lectionaries, you'll get right through 5212, and then it'll stop at 5212. It'll pick right back up at 54.1, lest the people misunderstand. Listen, if you've come here this morning and you wouldn't identify as a Christian, notice what Isaiah doesn't say. He doesn't say the answer to our sins is to explain them away. He doesn't say the answer to your sin this morning is just to make excuses for it. To claim that, you know, hey, listen, God, I'm the real victim in this. I'm the real victim in this life. Do genuinely horrible things happen to people? Yes, they do. Sadly, in a sinful world, that's what sinful people do. And I don't mean to minimize that. But in truth, there is only one victim in the Bible. Only one truly innocent man who suffered and died. And it's not you, and it's not me. It's this servant, Jesus Christ. We've all been denied access to God. Like Adam and Eve in our sin, and like Israel here, we too have been barred from God's presence. We live as exiles east of Eden. All of us do in our natural state, which is why another would have to come. This servant, a perfect substitute, stricken, smitten so that we might be saved, afflicted by God so that we could be accepted by God. To get back to God, to receive access into his presence. Friend, you can't pay your way. You might have enough money to get into the Yellowstone Club. I don't know. Maybe you do. You're holding out on us. But you cannot get back to this God. Not that way. You can't buy your way. You can't work your way. Only Christ's way, only his sacrifice can bring you back to God. And it becomes yours by believing in him, by trusting in him, by turning away from your life and trusting and resting in his life. Christ didn't die to show you the way. No, he died right to make the way, to bring you to God. You know, last week we saw that God saves through a servant. That was becoming clear. But as we've pressed in in these chapters, we see the picture develop and we see that God saves vicariously through a suffering servant. That's what's become clear. God saves vicariously through a suffering servant. You know, sadly, many think about Christianity and they think it's simply to be about moral laws, about ethical principles for wise living. And we can treat the Bible like a religious rule book. And Christianity does have precepts. It does have prescriptions. Christianity, though, it is not about precepts. Christianity is about a person.
person. This person. Christianity doesn't offer you rules. It offers you a redeemer. It doesn't offer you a system. It's not a path to self-improvement. Christianity offers you a savior. As one noted, Jesus did not come. And he did not say to the disciples, or he did not say to the crowds, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you steps. That's not what Jesus said. No, it's in a redeemer. It's in me, Jesus says, that you find rest for your souls. Friends, do you know this Jesus? Have you submitted to him? You know, to the Christian in the room, you may be wondering, we're often left wondering in life what God is doing. What is God doing? Right? When the sufferings mount, when it feels like God is silent, when we're fighting to read and pray and we're struggling just to do that for 10 minutes, when the sorrows weigh upon us and we're tempted to believe that Israel, like Israel, that God has abandoned us, he's forgotten us, he has forsaken us. Friends, what is God doing in those moments in our life? What is he doing in this moment in the life of Israel? He is fulfilling his plans for his people. That's exactly what he's doing. At all times, when things are out of control, when all seems out of place, when nothing is as it should be. Friend, do you know those weeks? Do you know those days? Some of us have had them. This week, Nothing is as it should be. And yet here God again is whispering to us. He's reminding us. And he's saying, I've got this. I am in control. I know it doesn't look like I know what I am doing. It appears to you like I am thoroughly confused. But trust me. I can see. God says, what you cannot see. And I am doing what you cannot do for yourself. The Father in these chapters is lifting our eyes. And when all seems lost, he is calling us again to look at the cross and to look at his servant. Do you see how I am fulfilling my plans for you? Do you see again how I love you? Let's pray.